Hello and welcome to Product Wise Podcast. This is your host, Alexandra Morshikova. Joining us today is Amanda Kozlowski Stanley. Amanda is a fractional head of product and a co founder of Sound Products Northwest. She partners up with founders and business leaders who build and test product ideas that are deeply rooted in customer needs. Amanda returned to the West Coast after a decade in Washington, D.C. and Hong Kong. She's led strategy and innovation projects for private and public sector organizations on five continents, including a former U.S. president, Jimmy Cotter, the CEO of one of the Germany's largest conglomerates, and Starbucks. Amanda, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Most welcome. Um, so, Amanda, as, as per usual, um, the routes to product lead, um, to product lead types of the roles are very, very different. What is your story? How did you come across uh, product as a profession? How did you start in it? My path to product leadership certainly wasn't linear. I started my career in Washington, D.C., working in the policy and economic space. I moved into management consulting, spent many years in that field. And when I arrived in Seattle about a decade ago, I started getting digital strategy projects for my clients. And I'll be the first to admit that when I first started doing that kind of work, I barely knew what digital strategy meant. Uh, but any, like any good consultant, I learned very quickly. Uh, and in the course of that, really fell in love with what you can do with software. It's pretty magical that just with a couple lines of code, you can solve a lot of problems for people. So once I figured that out, um, sort of discovered product management as, as a practice, uh, that set me up for the rest of my career. And that's the work I've been doing ever since. I started in very large companies, including Starbucks and Live Person, and then over time uh, moved into the start startup space, mm -hmm. which I'm really enjoying Exciting. What do you like more, startup space or more of a corporate environment? Mm -hmm. uh, they have, they both have their pros and cons for sure. Um, uh, the resources and reach you can have at an enterprise company are pretty astounding. At Starbucks, I got to work on products that touched close to 20 million regular mm -hmm. Starbucks members, which is just, it really teaches you a, a lot of skills and, and to have a very high for delivery. That's an experience I'll, I'll take with me for the rest of my career. On the flip side of a startup, it's, it's still shocking to me sometimes just how fast you can move with very mm -hmm. few constraints in it and at a smaller scale. So I really enjoy that I get to get my hands dirty in a different way from working in a very large organization. Definitely. Both of the journeys are um, most exciting. Um, it's it's, uh, it's interesting that you've experienced both and um have that reflection. Um, this is this is our first episode on the subject of uh, fractional leadership, um, which I find uh, tremendously interesting. I think it's um, it's extremely relevant for for the current times, especially for some of the early stage organizations that you might be working with as well. Um, that to say, uh, more for growth stage organizations or sometimes corporates can also involve fractional uh, leaders to help them get their products or additional products up to speed. Um, could you could you unpack the subject a little bit? Um, how does the fractional head of product work? Um, when are you being called in um, to help the leaders? Um, what are you working on? Sure. Uh, a fractional executive is, as the name implies, a part-time leader. 
someone who can come in and help an organization with product leadership, finding product market fit and delivering fast. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, as I understand it, uh, fractional uh, leadership actually started more in, in the marketing space. Uh, and in the last couple of years has become much more popular in product management circles, particularly because of some of the, the challenges you described in the last few years where startups are no longer in a funding rich environment. Um, so hiring a full-time head of products might not be the right move for your organization. So a part-time leader can come in, help you do early stage validation and grow fast, hopefully to a point where you do eventually need to make a full-time hire. Very true. Um, you see sometimes um, the early stage teams bringing in um, effectively senior product managers, um, placing them in a head of product role, but without um, having this experience of having scaled the organizations before. Um, and it's a bit of a learning on the job um, type of a situation. Very risky from, from some of the founders, um, of course, uh, but you know, um, everybody has a very different uh, risk appetite. Um, I personally would would go forward with um, someone who had done the journey before, um, and probably a lot of the companies these days would. Um, you've you've started working as a fractional leader around a year ago, from what I understand, and um, the, the the focus seems to be on new product launches. Um, my understanding, um, again, is more towards um, the work with earlier stage companies, um, how the things are going for you in the past year, what type of adventures are you working with, who seems to be really in, um, in the need for fractional leaders, especially um, in a turbulent last year that we've, that we've all had. Mm -hmm. uh, my experience as a fractional this past year has mm -hmm. been so interesting satisfying because i've had the opportunity to work on a really wide everything from furniture logistics solution to an audiobook yeah. app to a data science platform so really running the gamut <laughs> in terms of and i've also been working with services organizations this year which is not something that i would have expected when i first launched my business. I figured I would be working with technology companies to launch new zero to one products. Uh, but the, the struggles that people come to me with um, usually come in uh, three symptoms. Number one, they've, they've developed a bunch of shelfware that has never seen a single paying client. So in some cases they've already gone out and hired um, typically an agency development team to build them mm. idea, but they have to sell it. Mm. The second symptom is that subject matter experts will have an idea rattling around in their head and, and want to go to market with something, but because they don't mm. come from a, a tech background, they don't really know what the first couple of steps look like. And then the mm. final symptom is that maybe they have an idea, they've started to put something out into the market, they get enthusiastic noises from potential customers, but those conversations never go anywhere. So my job mm -hmm. is to really help them um, simplify, clarify the idea, and in a quick-term, low-cost way, figure out if you're onto something before you double down on your investment. So it sounds like they're struggling with a viability of 
um, of the product. So um, what else do you typically see with within the types of the ventures that you're working with? Um, what are other struggles that um, they might be wishing to overcome together with you or as a result of, of course, having the product leader in the organization? Mm. I think the, the first most common one is um, many leaders are inclined to build rather than buy. Mm. So they spend uh, quite a bit of money building a bespoke solution that they're then not able to find paying customers for. Mm. And over my time in product, I've learned the hard way that building is not as effective as, as you want it to be. Mm. So a lot of the work I do is specifically to find ways to cobble together existing solutions to get them closer to validation without making a large investment in building their own technology. Understood. Um, I'm still curious to, to learn a little bit more about your engagement. Um, it's probably all of the listeners, uh, not all of the listeners will be familiar with the fractional leaders and how do they work and how does the engagement um, effectively works. Um, could you help me understand perhaps on the example of one of your recent engagements, um, what to expect if let's say I was a founder struggling to to bring the product to the market or maybe having an idea and looking for a validation, what would be our day-to-day? -day? Um, how would you help me transform my vision into reality or maybe um you know really rerouting me to look at something else uh if the idea is not viable sure i'm happy to describe how that actually happens on a day-to-day -day basis uh, typically my engagements start with me interviewing founders and trying to get a sense for where they are today what's keeping them up at night and if everything went perfectly, where would they be in three or five years? Mm. So I can deeply mm. understand what they've already tried um, and, and what's on their mind. Then we get into, uh, into trying to get the idea out of their head and onto a piece of paper for a potential customer to react to. I think a lot of, of founders will think that the first step in my process will be them describing their idea and I go build it and try to sell it. Mm -hmm. um, and the biggest light bulb uh, and some of the most pushback I get is in, um, in using rapid prototyping tools with my founders before we proceed into writing any code. So that can come to life in mm -hmm. a couple of different ways. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, one of my founders has a, a successful newsletter that he writes um, on, mm -hmm on topics happening in the technology policy space. So he has the perfect mm -hmm. little incubator for testing mm -hmm. new ideas, even though he didn't think of it that way. Mm -hmm. so he had an idea for a new product and he came to me and said, Amanda, great, help me build this thing. I think my readers will really want to buy it. So the first thing I did with him is we sat down and we wrote one paragraph describing what that potential product, who that product is for, what new thing you can do with it and the outcome it drives for the people who buy it. We put that paragraph in his newsletter and asked for people to sign up for early access. Lo and behold, there were no early access signups. Mm. So we were able 
with the investment of mm. a single paragraph of copy, able to determine that we didn't quite have the idea right yet, and we needed to keep trying a couple new ideas before mm. we went and made a larger investment. Another example I'll give you mm. is I'm working with a founder who is a deep expert in audiobook narration. She also had a really good idea for a new product in the audiobook space. She came to me and said, Amanda, help me mm. build it. And I said, uh, hold up, let's, let's put together a landing page. And in about mm. 20 minutes, we wrote a headline, a section of key features, and a link mm. to sign up. Mm. We recruited five listeners from, um, from audiobook groups to come talk mm. to us and look at the landing page and tell us what they saw. And in one of the conversations, I'll never forget, a listener said, this page means literally nothing to me. Oh, Which wow. is such a gift. Yeah, it's some strong feedback. <laughs> it's strong feedback. And that's the yeah. exact kind of feedback that is, such, is so powerful because it, it saved us from going down what could have been a very expensive and time-consuming path. So using these rapid mm. prototyping tools, um, like a pitch in a newsletter, or a mocked up landing page can help you collect enough signal at the earliest stages to, mm. to make your course corrections faster and lower cost. Yeah, we've had um, a fantastic guest, uh, one of the first guests um, that came for a podcast, uh, Shinyong Park, I think you might enjoy her episode. She talks wonders um, around the rapid prototyping um, and rapid testing uh, with the live audience for more from B2C market. Um, I think that could be a great um, a great episode to listen to um, if anybody is more specifically in the B2C. Um, she's also a mentor with 500 um, startups. So uh, that's, you know, that just shows that she has to really work across all of the varieties of the audiences to help them really build and test the ideas quite quick um, for them to go to the next stage. So that is extremely exciting. It sounds like a very um, tactical, focused uh, work based on what the person had on the table originally or what the founding team had on the table, testing that out um, and then potentially prototyping further to make sure that whatever idea they will further bring into the market will actually have some validity with that market uh, before you had to pricing, um, cost, etc. Um, what happens afterwards? Let's say you've uh, you've reached your uh, your MVP. How do founders typically engage with you, or CEOs usually engage with you post that original um, MVP? How do you help um, scale uh, the product to the original audience, original sales, um, maybe original, you know? really paying client um that is an enterprise use, user um for bigger for smaller teams that means a lot um what how does your engagement progress through through the months of your work hmm. it can take two paths the first that's particularly important for early stage companies is i support founders in founder-led sales mm -hmm. i think there is a, a misconception uh, among less seasoned founders that once you have a product, you can just stick it on the internet and the product will do the rest. 
and um, really to get to your first 10 customers, in almost every case, the founder is in the room with the customer making that sale. Mm-hmm. And that product is supporting the conversation, but not leading it. Mm-hmm. So um, after we have early validation, a lot of my work with founders is, is, is coaching them on a customer-centric sales process. And so creating a natural conversation that's focused around discovery and an understanding of the customer's problem that hopefully leads to the conversation ending with, how soon can I have this? I would love to pay for it. The, mm. the biggest mindset shift that I help new founders make is from asking, would you buy this to what's hard for you right now? Mm. And that shift into getting curious about what their day-to-day is like, what's keeping them up at night, and leaning into the problem space is a much more authentic mm. and easy way to have a potential sales conversation than putting your mm. product in front of a customer and, and trying to get it. So, mm. yeah, so that's Definitely. the first step is, is sort of supporting them in those conversations. And, it, you know, it can feel really challenging and vulnerable at first. Um, so being their partner in that, um, leading some of those conversations myself and sort of teeing them up to run with it is is where I can support. The second path is, of course, continuing to develop the product. I myself have led engineering and design pods to go build full scale products, mm-hmm. so I can continue to work alongside that team to you know make you know find the right um, uh, freelancers and or FTEs to round out your initial development team and get that team moving on the right foot. Mm, interesting. Um, you've noted under the first path a very interesting point on the sales leadership. Um, uh, quite a few of the um of the founders um that might be coming from more for technical backgrounds do not necessarily um prefer to do the sales by themselves. Is that something that you're finding as well? Is that just me because I deal a lot with the technical founders? Um, what's your take on this? I think it's really common, not only technical founders, but people who are deep subject matter experts in general. Uh, if you don't come from a sales background, it it feels very intimidating, and I completely understand that. Um, and that's what I see as the real magic of mm. leading with curiosity about your customers. You don't have to pitch anything; you're just asking mm. questions. And if you are asking those with an open mind and true intent to understand your customer better, um, it's not going to feel like sales. And that's the the magic pivot point for people who aren't naturally inclined to do that kind of work. Yeah, that's a, that's a good angle to look at it and to also de-stress the situation. I wish a lot more salespeople were listening to this podcast, to be honest, at this particular point. But, um Everyone from from all of the different industries, from uh, real estate up till software sometimes. Um, so naturally, um, you know, your role is dependent on how the product is um, is performing. So, and for every single case, you know, the the leadership that we need for a particular situation could be different. 
what do you find are the uh, main or core competencies um, that one should look for in the fractional head of product? Sure, happy to talk about what to look for in a fractional head of product. Um, I have seen many founders will gravitate toward finding product managers that come from large tech companies. Some of the postings will explicitly ask for a fan or man alum. Um, mm. And in my experience, uh, having worked at larger companies, though, though none of them is, product management in a highly scaled technology organization is a completely different beast from working in a pre-seed startup. And finding really what you're looking for is someone who has true zero to one product experience, who can start from a pure blank page mm. and find a way to validate it. Yeah. So what you're looking for, in my opinion, is actually three things. One is someone who's a strong written communicator. So it's going to serve two purposes for you. One, it will help you clarify your own strategy internally and get your team aligned. And two, your head of product should be writing copy to test with customers because your earliest prototypes are not software. They're usually something written. So finding someone who can do that is really key. The second mm. is your head of product needs to be, needs to have a really strong pulse on what your customers are saying. So the question to ask is, what's the last time you talked to a customer and what did you learn? If they don't mm. have an immediate answer to that, it might not be a good fit. Mm. And finally, to my earlier point, fractional heads of product need experience operating in resource scarce environments. And I mean resources in terms of dollars, headcount, and customers. Mm. It's the exact opposite of working in a large tech company where you often have a good amount of money to spend. Your team is nice and large and you have lots of customers to talk to. Now, I'm not saying that product management is by any means easy in that space, but it is very different from when you are working on a shoestring, have little to no team and no customers that you can pick up the phone and call. Yeah. Could not agree more with you. I think fit for purpose should be written across all of the front pages once you open up the computer, uh, if you're planning to hire. Um, so always think about the case scenarios that the person needs to be familiar with and where you want this person to help you get to as the next step. Um, oftentimes, um, and probably you would you would say the same, but founders get lost in the vision of what a potential product could be, see this 100 wonderful steps that one can potentially take, but uh, they don't really see the very first step that is in front of them. And um, that's at least my feeling for um, some of the founders looking for, you know, step 99 type of a person mm -hmm. rather than step zero to one, as you said. Um, evidently, and um, I don't know if that's going to make this discussion a bit easier, 
But uh, it's not only the early stage founders that are guilty of that. It's also the P-backed organizations and the founders that had been there forever and had been the CEOs. CEOs that had also stepped in into certain um, teams, they're also guilty of um, sometimes selecting fancy names versus um, outcome-based um, evidence of what you've done before. Um, not to say that, you know, uh, Fangermang um, uh, candidates may not have had the same uh, competencies, but those are rarely checked when the person is coming in from, from a larger larger organization. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know if that helps, but uh, uh, it does it does show that um, we're all guilty across all of the stages of the growth. What other mistakes do you usually um, see outside, of course, you know, bringing in the person that is a little bit more, um, a little bit too mature from from the organizational standpoint and the skills that may not necessarily match at this stage? Um, what other mistakes do you see founders making which you feel could have been avoided or we could all learn from? I think the another common pattern I find among companies I work with is that they spend more time building than talking to their customers. It goes back to my earlier point that you should have a ready answer at any moment. When is the last time you talked to a customer and what did you learn from them? And keeping a really steady pattern of customer discovery habits is going to be critical to your team continuing to make the right decisions along the product development path. Let me think of any other ones. That's, a, that's an excellent mm-hmm. point, actually, mm-hmm. because um, one of the one of the things that I, I find that is becoming a lot more difficult once you hit Series A is really acknowledging the, the product-led culture. Um, so again, testing, listening to the customer, working hand in hand with the sales team, um, or, or biz staff, uh, however you might want to call them within your organization. So really maintaining that connection quite closely, um, and then spearheading your way through to series B and onwards. So that, that's something that, um, I wish sometimes somebody like yourself would have explained already at pre-seed seed stage. So when they do hit the series A, they can actually go loads faster than they go right now. Because that's, I feel is an important learning, uh, not just for the sake of speed off, you know, raising the next round, but from the waste of the resources um, that you have uh, from overhiring, from overdeveloping, um, so somebody I feel uh, should really uh, teach that um, when the first prototype is is being made. Mm. Yes, that's a great point. It's it's so much simpler to hire more developers than it is to spend more time talking to your customers and sort of wander around in the wilderness for products. Yeah, why do so? I I understand why. Like the, I understand the the impulse. Um, but then you can often end up with um, features that your customer doesn't need and or a development team that's that doesn't have um, a strong roadmap in front of them. 
why do you think the, the the founders are not really that keen to talk to the customers? What are they afraid of? Maybe we could uh, wave a couple of original concerns that they may have um, straight away with, you know, with that podcast episode. Mm, it's terrifying. Talking to customers is terrifying. And the reason why it's so scary, in my opinion, is that we've all been taught that you need to sound like an expert. And to sound like an expert, you can't ask questions. Uh, what I've learned through the course of my career in product is that the opposite is true. The more questions you ask, the more your customer will trust you because it demonstrates your commitment to understanding what they're really going through and what they I've actually had founders tell me our instincts were completely wrong about this until you forced us to have customer conversations in a different way. That is another golden piece of feedback. Um, so that's um, that's a great point of, of a learning. Um, is there perhaps a third one that you'd like to bring to the attention, something that you that you might want to pass to upcoming, you know, founders, um, something that they could learn already in theory and hopefully apply in, in practice with you or by themselves um, when they when they test their products, bring them to markets. Hmm. Another big learning for me working as a fractional head of product this year is that, and this is going to be controversial, the earliest work of a head of product is often product your job is to figure mm. out what your prospects are trying to do and describe a product that lets them do those things. So you're testing messages rather than building product in your earliest days of product validation. Mm. And that was a big mindset shift for me personally. I, I, think, I thought in my more junior days of product that you build the product and then you go talk to marketing and you tell them about this great thing that you've built and then they, they figure out how to sell it. The reverse is true. You're figuring out what the right message is that convinces people that you are solving a problem for them and you build the product that fulfills that promise. So I think founders can really benefit from thinking about product validation in that way. Because again, it lets you do validation a lot uh, more inexpensively when you're testing messages rather than testing software. Definitely. Um, what um, what would you like to finalize um, our conversation today with? Um, you've you've brought already quite quite a lot of golden nuggets um, to pass on, but perhaps there's something that we haven't yet touched upon um, that you'd like to cover or wanted to cover, and I just didn't happen to ask you about this. Um, I hate to miss on those types of things. So is there anything that you'd like to bring to, to the attention of the listeners? Hmm. Um, another thing I'd love to bring to listeners' minds is the idea that product management skill sets are useful beyond technology organizations. As I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, many of my clients this year are services organizations rather than technology organizations. And they come to me because consulting and services is by nature a boom and bust business. Mm. And it's by nature not scalable. 
Right? Typically, the way you scale a services organization is by building a pyramid. That can be really exhausting. So when you apply a product mindset to services, you're applying the mindset of building one to many instead of one to one. That mindset helps you spot and productize the patterns in your IP and your client work. You don't realize you're doing over and over again. But, and what the benefit of that is that it, it, it lets you deliver more work at lower effort and fewer resources. So I think you know, regardless of, of what space you're working in, applying product mindsets can help your team function better and help you be more successful in the market. I read Productized by Aisha Armstrong earlier this year. And mm-hmm. she is, you know, she runs the masterclass in, in productizing services organizations. And I highly recommend that book to people who don't consider themselves to be in technology, software, or product. I think regardless of what kind of business you, you mm-hmm. work for, you can apply a product mindset to make things easier. Yeah, even outside of your professional life um, to anything from house purchase to um, holiday planning, um, the the mindset by itself of discussing with multiple stakeholders, coming to a conclusion that works for um, for everybody, that makes sense, that brings value. Um, I think the the underlying kind of golden threads, again, are so consistent throughout all of your life and could support you even outside or in any career um, that you choose to develop, even if it's outside of um, technology space. So that's an excellent, excellent point. Well, Amanda, thank you so much. It's been a phenomenal time having you here. Um, I do hope that we speak again and um, perhaps next year you will have um, a whole different bunch of the stories and examples of how the founders are, are building their products. Um, this year had been really, really tough for so many. So I'm really hopeful to see next year a lot more of uh, products launching um, and having a really fertile market for the success of those products. Well said. Thanks so much, Alex. Great. Thank you so much.